The 18th Judicial District is easily the most heavily populated of Colorado's districts, with about a fifth of the population. Some of the country's most high-profile violent crimes since the 1990s have happened in the district. The jurisdiction has also never had a Democratic district attorney. In 2016, the current DA, term-limited George Brockler, ran unopposed. But this year has competition. The Democratic candidate ran for her party's nomination for attorney general in 2018. The Republican nominee is a career prosecutor who has worked in the district since 2013. On this episode of Hearsay's Elected Justice series on this season's district attorney races, I talked to John Kellner, the Republican candidate seeking to succeed George Brockler. Welcome back to Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado. I'm Julia Carty. John Kellner came to the 18th District in 2013 to help start a cold case unit. When he came to Colorado in 2011, he first worked for a few years in the Boulder DA's office. He also has pushed for the expansion of the 18th District's Veterans Treatment Court, one of several problem-solving courts intended as alternatives to the traditional purely punitive court processes and to help people with conditions such as mental illness or substance addiction get treatment. He doesn't paint himself as a hardline, tough-on-crime prosecutor. During a brief phone call on primary night in June, he disavowed the characterization of Republican district attorneys as wanting to lock up every offender and throw away the key. For people in this jurisdiction, they need to know, number one, the person that if, God forbid, you know, they or one of their loved ones was the victim of a crime, that the person sitting across the table from them saying, I will seek justice for you, has been there, has done that, has credibility when they say that they can do that. And it's not just saying it as you know, the office leader, because not every DA is going to be in the courtroom all the time. But the district attorney sets the tone for the entire office. The district attorney, the elected DA, the person at that top, needs to lead from the front. And leading from the front is one of the first things you learn in the Marine Corps. So I'm really passionate about seeking justice for people. I'm really passionate about common sense criminal justice reform. Really what it boils down to is I've got the background and the experience to do this job and to do it well, to do things like supporting safe communities and school safety while upholding the rule of law, always, always thinking about victims, treating them with dignity and respect, putting them at the forefront when you're thinking about justice, and then holding offenders accountable when you have to, because there's always a time and place for that as a prosecutor. I'm interested to talk about the programs in the 18th District's court system that are intended as alternatives to incarceration, so namely diversion programs, specialty treatment courts. Let's let's start with the the Veterans Treatment Court. What can you tell me about the outcomes of that treatment court so far? I mean, do you have an idea of how many people have cycled through it and and do you have any data on the outcomes of their participation? Yeah, so people that graduate our program, we've got a less than 6% recidivism rate. Uh it's absolutely fantastic when you compare the national rate of people that go on to recidivate, it's around 40% in Colorado, sometimes it's up to 50 you know, for these basic programs and things like probation. So the Veterans Treatment Court is something I'm really passionate about from my time in the service. And then having seen people who deployed in service of their country and come back and start struggling in a way that they maybe hadn't before with alcohol or drugs or their relationships had fallen apart in a way that things just kind of went off the rails. And knowing that we as a country and a community 
have an obligation to some of these folks uh, to try and put them right. And so we started this program as a great collaborative court. So this is not something that I did all by myself. I'd never, ever claimed that. This is something that was a collaborative effort between the judges of the 18th, the public defender's office, um, mental health treatment providers, the VA, and community people. So we have a lot of peer mentors, people that have donated and volunteered their time to help these veterans struggling with these issues. It's really interesting because what we see when we get this community involvement, and it's not just with veterans, but the Veterans Court is a good example of how it works. So when you've got community people involved, so not just a probation officer who says, hey, listen, this is where you need to go, and, and here's a list of people you can call maybe to help you get a job, and don't forget to do your urinalysis, things like that. But the community that comes in and says, hey, we're here for you. Maybe I've been there where you are. You need a ride to court? I got you. Oh, your car broke down? No, no. We'll take care of you. We'll make sure you get there. I can help you get ready for that interview for a job. I've got an old suit. Yeah, you can have that. You know, I will drive you to that interview because I know you're not allowed to drive. The things like that that make success so much more attainable for people in the justice system. I think that's the secret sauce. It's that community involvement. So, you know, we have other specialty courts. It's not just the veterans court. Um, you know, we've got a mental health treatment court. We've got a drug court. We now have a DUI court. And DUI court's been a pilot program for about uh, almost 18 months now. And so far, we've not had anybody go into that program, which I think we have it capped right now at 20 and nobody has uh, committed a new offense. These people are are doing a good job. And this is important because, you know, I have seen people with a dozen DUIs, a dozen, and there's nothing stopping them from getting back behind the wheel after kicking back a bunch of drinks. But the answer can't just be, we've got to you know, put people in, in jail and then put people in prison. Because what we're finding is that those people get out of jail and oftentimes get back onto that, that bad habit. So we've got to be smart about how we approach that. Can we rehabilitate? Can we get people to stop the behavior and then stop cycling through this system? Uh, so problem-solving courts, I'm especially passionate about. I think they're extremely successful. They're very intensive. They require a lot of support. But the outcomes really can't be beat. Kellner said he didn't have data on the district's specialty courts at his fingertips. I asked him if the data showing overrepresentation of people of color in the 18th district's criminal court system highlights a need to look at data about who participates in the programs intended to reduce incarceration. How about if it's working, right? We should be taking data in because it's going to inform our decisions in terms of policymaking. You know, and, and if we're creating programs that aren't actually addressing the underlying problem and helping reduce recidivism and getting people out of the justice system, then we've got to change course. We've got to do something different. I definitely agree with you, though. I mean, to the extent that what you're saying is more data is going to be helpful. I think that's true. And I think that's a good thing about SB 217 that was passed. The more information, the better, because that's going to inform how we approach justice. You know, what are the laws going to be in terms of sentences? And, and is there you know, racial inequality that might be driven by implicit bias? And how will you know that unless you collect good data? 
So we we have data, at least through the CLEAR Act, collecting information on prosecution, you know, in Colorado's various judicial districts. But we have data collection, you know, mandated by, by that act as recently as I think 2018 that shows in the 18th district, racial minorities are overrepresented in the criminal court system at pretty much every stage from arrest to case outcome. I mean, can you tell me as district attorney, you know, what tools in a prosecutor's toolbox would you use to understand and try to reduce those inequities? I really think that's a, a great question, especially the way you you phrased it, because when we look at this demographic information about who's going into the justice system, I don't think it's right to start with the premise that because, let's say there is um, a proportion of society, you know, for instance, 50% is female, right? The justice system is not composed of you know 50% female defendants right it's not 50% male it's much more you know male defendants than female and it's frankly much more when it gets to violent crime um you know much more many more male defendants and so when you look at this information you've got to have an eye towards are there communities and areas i think within the jurisdiction that we're seeing increased crime and then are there programs, and these are probably not DA programs necessarily, but programs from government that can help basically break some of that cycle, whether it's due to poverty or substance abuse. When you get into the, the justice system and you're talking about the prosecutor, you get there because somebody has allegedly committed a crime and the justice system demands to know whether or not that person is responsible and should be held accountable. And the flip side to every single one of those cases is a victim. And so when I look at these numbers, probably the same numbers you're looking at, in a place like Aurora, where incredibly diverse community, really great representation from all different nationalities. We've got a great refugee community. There's so much there. And 14% roughly of that population in Aurora is African-American. And yet, for violent crime alone, African-Americans make up roughly 30 to 33% of the victims of violent crime. And it gets way worse when you talk about things like shootings and much worse when you're talking about homicides. Anywhere between 60 to 80% of the victims of those most heinous crimes are also African-American. And so I look at it a lot from a victim perspective. I, I know there's folks that say, look, these numbers are too high. And I, I say to him, look, the reality is I'm not going to turn away from a victim in a case because the population percentage doesn't match with the number of cases that we have in our court system. Those people deserve justice just as much as anybody else, irrespective of the color of their skin or any other immutable characteristics about them. So. It's a multifaceted answer. I mean, one thing I always want to focus on the victims, but another thing is what we could do a lot better in the DA's office is collect information to look for crime trends and not just demographic data, but where is this happening? Why is it happening? What are the drivers of it? Not just saying, here's the X percentage that is white. Here's the Y percentage that is black. 
because that's very superficial and it doesn't actually address whatever the underlying problems are that are driving the crime. I know that that one bill that was derailed this year because of the the pandemic was a bill that would have required prosecutors to collect data on defendants in each judicial district. Is that a measure that you would either actively push for or support should it come up again? Yeah, I think it actually would be a great thing to be able to collect more information on defendants. You, know, you got to be sensitive about it, though, because number one, it could be asking for information that their defense attorneys don't want to share for whatever reason, you know, personal information about them. And the reality is that the district attorney doesn't have the ability to just walk up to somebody and say, tell me this and that about you. That's not how the system works. You know, there's certainly demographic information on a, a pretty superficial level that is taken by the courts or certainly when somebody gets into the Department of Corrections, of course, and in jails. But DAs typically don't have that intersection with a defendant in a sort of one-on-one -on -one environment where you say, hey, can you fill out this form and give me some background information? So when I say that, I mean, if we go forward with defendant data collection, which I think is a good thing, it's got to be a, a collaborative effort across the spectrum and really with the help of the public defender's office. You know, they're going to be a great source to collect information about uh, defendants and you know, I'm certainly open to agreements to make sure that it doesn't end up in the criminal file and it can't be used against them in a way if they're concerned about that. But it's just not one, it's not a one uh, office solution. Just really broadly, can you tell me about how do the demographics of the district translate to how you think about prosecution as an institution in the 18th? What makes the 18th unique is that because of its widespread nature between the four counties. And the four counties have very different makeups in terms of population density uh, and a lot of different space, that you, you have everything running the gamut from urban issues in terms of shootings, sometimes gang violence, organized crime, uh, all the way out to you know, places in Lincoln and Elbert County where you're dealing with very different issues, things like Illegal marijuana grows, you know, the, the black market grows that, that sometimes pop up in places that have a lot of different open space. Or we've had, you know, cartels set up shop in places like Douglas County in communities where they're able to say, hey, look, here's a house with a very large basement. And the, the cost is much lower because you're outside of the, you know, urban, more urban area closer to Denver, setting up, um, you know, illegal drug dis distribution networks out of suburban communities. So unlike, let's say, you know, a single county judicial district where you, you probably don't have that vast difference in the type of crimes that you're going to potentially face as the DA and have to deal with, that's what makes the 18th really unique. You have everything running the entire gamut, the entire spectrum of criminal activity and really unique and diverse communities with different needs. It's something that we would probably not like to be famous for is, is the 18th has also happened to be where some of the state and frankly, the country's most notorious violent crimes in the past couple of decades have happened, you know, whether that's the Columbine massacre, the Chuck E. Cheese shootings, of course, the Aurora Theater massacre. What kind of tangibles and intangibles do you think are necessary to handle those kind of cases? 
first thing, you, you do need the prosecution experience. I mean, you have to have been in court, tried murder cases, and not just you know any case, but prosecuted cases against some of the best defense attorneys. And we have an accomplished, good defense bar in the state of Colorado who do their job with the utmost alacrity. I mean, they try to do the best they can for their clients. And you have to be prepared in our adversarial system to represent the people and seek justice. So experience having been in those kinds of cases and having worked in this jurisdiction, having prosecuted murder cases, that matters. But when you get deeper into, you know, not just in court, asking questions of witnesses and, and going through the strategy of that, it's experience with victims. You know, you have to know how to talk to people who've suffered uh, unfathomable loss and to reassure them that this system is one they can trust and that the person leading that office is somebody they can trust too. It's about treating victims with dignity and respect, always having a good line of communication. And when you have these tragically large cases with many victims, it becomes all the more important. You know, you have so many different legal obligations and ethical obligations to those victims, but just compassionate obligations is something uh, I think that gets overlooked often. You know, so I've been to victims' homes and, and told them, we reopened this case and we have charged people with the murder of your loved one and explained to them that this is going to be a long bumpy, difficult road, and what all the steps of that process look like. I've done that. I've sat next to George Brockler as he does that too. It's not something that you delegate away when you are trying to lead from the front and set the tone for the entire office. One thing that the new batch of prosecutors and of, of district attorneys in Colorado is going to need to grapple with that I think is really new that we've been seeing these past couple of months is the, you know, with, with the outrage over police killings is the influence on public policy in Colorado of something that happened in a completely different state. How would you as head of the 18th go about evaluating whether something really high profile, you know, like a police killing that has possibly systemic implications, but happened in a completely different state. How do you evaluate if calls for policy change based on that are something that are a fit for Colorado, something that, that um, you know, really fit with what Colorado would need, essentially? Yeah. So listen, I think it's got to be all principle driven. I mean, I know that's an easy thing to say, and, and maybe it's because I'm brand new to politics, <laughs> but you have to be driven by your principles and you have to think about, you know, the things that motivate you to be a public servant and what you think the public expects from you and then decide, okay, is this a good fit? And if it's not, can we make it a good fit? So I'll give you an example. I mean, something that furthers the truth seeking process, I'm for that. Something that furthers transparency in government on principle, I'm for that. And if there are legislative efforts and reforms that come out of, you know, a tragedy, frankly, a killing, a horrible killing, of, for instance, of George Floyd, 
that advance those principles, then I'm for that. You know, anything, frankly, in this day and age, more so than I've ever felt in my life, that furthers people's trust in their government and in their elected officials and the police who are supposed to enforce those laws, I'm for that on principle. Because I think there's a crisis of trust right now. I mean, people are reeling. It's hard to know at times what to believe and who to believe from people who are in an elected position that you're expecting to help lead you. So, you know, if we can bridge some of those gaps, then I think those are good things for Colorado. Any legislative effort has got to be driven towards solving an actual problem. So, you know, you don't just want to pass laws to make people feel good or to have people, you know, be able to pat themselves on the back. You want to do something that's meaningful. Because again, going back to what I talked about with public trust, look, if people pass laws that, that don't have meaningful impact and address a real problem, that just makes the public less trusting of you know, people in government that they're there to do the people's work. You know, it feels more self-serving. So you know, just putting the word reform in front of something doesn't necessarily make it a good step forward. It doesn't necessarily mean it's solving for a problem we have. One thing that I, I've realized as a prosecutor now for a long time here in Colorado is every legislative session, there are these ideas that come out and some of them are you know, really great ideas that, that we want to see advanced. And then others that, look, we don't think help. And as we go into the legislature and we testify against these things, you know, sometimes it feels like we're the, just the people saying no, no, no. And, and I think if we want to solve that problem so that we can get to a place where we're all saying yes and for the right reasons, I would love to have legislators come into the office, you know, come into court, spend a day, see what this looks like, come to a hearing or two, listen to what we're doing, look at the data we do have, you know, in, I think we're the only judicial district in the entire state that publishes our data on who we've sent to prison in each quarter. And we try to put that information out there to be as transparent as possible and to be accountable to people. But you know, we also need to bring them in and say, look at our data and, and tell us, what do you think? Because bottom line is this, I go into court and I say, John Kellner for the people. And I mean that I'm representing my community when I stand up in court. And I want to know, I want the community, first of all, to know what I am doing in their name. And then I want to know if they approve of the way we're doing it. Just really directly, do you think that the court of public opinion should have a role in influencing policies and practices around the prosecution of law enforcement officers, you know, since that's the, the topic at hand? So the role of public opinion should absolutely shape your legislators and shape your policy and, and how you write your laws. And that matters. I mean, we're supposed to be a representative government. So if people don't like what they're seeing, they should make their voices be heard. And I'm all for that. One thing you have to do as a prosecutor, though, is you got to apply the law to the facts and then to your ethical responsibilities of being able to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury before you start bringing charges. Because the power of a prosecutor is enormous. I mean, look, 
a bad prosecutor is probably one of the worst things you can have in government. Somebody that wields prosecutorial power in a vindictive or, frankly, you know, targeted way against certain groups or people. That's the worst thing for public trust in government. So a prosecutor has to be willing to make tough choices. And they have to make tough decisions when they say, look, here's the facts of the case. Here's the law that applies to the case. And you know, whether it's uh, an officer-involved shooting, uh, whether it's a, you know, a DUI case uh, that resulted in the death of, of a child. And if you make a decision about charging or not charging, you have to be responsible for that decision. And you have the obligation to explain that decision to the people you represent. So it can't just be, you know, here's a letter. Sometimes a letter suffices, but look, there are other cases where people are so invested that if you're going to make a decision about prosecuting or not, you've got to get in front of people and explain how and why you made your decision. And that's another reason why experience matters, because here's the deal. You know, if you want somebody who's accountable in the way that we're talking about that can explain to people why I'm making the decision I'm making based off these facts in the law, that has to be somebody who knows that law, who has been there and has prosecuted these kinds of cases before. Otherwise, the person who's getting up and explaining or telling you their decision, that wasn't their decision. That was the decision of a bunch of other, you know, career prosecutors that work for that person who are then explaining to the inexperienced DA, what they should do. I just wanted to circle back to the topic of legislative measures that affect prosecution and, you know, kind of your, your role in that, you know, that every year, you know, there, there tend to be at least a handful of, of bills in the legislature that affect criminal law or prosecution kind of as a system. As district attorney, what particular legislative measures affecting either prosecutors or criminal law would you advocate for or oppose? You know, I've actually been involved in several legislative efforts over the years as a prosecutor. So, you know, we talked about problem solving courts earlier. And you know, one of the things that we were interested in doing, and I think it was about three years ago now, we wanted to expand the veterans treatment court model throughout the state. And really what it came down to was realizing, okay, we've got some good set of principles on how to make this thing work, but it's not going to work across the board. So we can't just sort of, you know, shove a, a one size fits all legislative effort that might cost a lot of money onto the entire state. So we started looking for, okay, what could we do that would actually help advance what we're trying to do? And so we came up with what seems like a small thing, but has had a huge impact. And that is we passed a law that said, now when somebody has their first appearance in front of a judge, that judge asks, have you ever served in the military? Are you a veteran? And what we were finding was there were so many people in the jail and the VA was finding this too, that were veterans that were never getting put into the possibility of VA treatment and using some of these federal resources and using our veterans treatment court because they were never identified as being eligible. And so adding that one question has dramatically increased the number of people going into these treatment courts across the state because we're, we're basically finding about 40% more potential applicants than we had before from one simple small question that cost nothing to implement. So small things can have a huge impact. 
if you're thoughtful about the legislation you're trying to bring forward. So anything that brings more truth and, and light, frankly, into this truth-seeking process of the justice system, I think is a good thing. I think a really timely thing that, that uh, is on a lot of folks' minds right now is you know, we've got this officer-involved shooting uh, statute where it says, look, if there's an officer-involved shooting, of course, there's reporting that goes into it. The district attorney has to write a report. We published that report on our website. I've had to write these in the past. I've had to investigate these cases. And one of the things that I think is really fair and obvious about this is that it shouldn't just be for officer-involved shootings. If there's a death and it's related to uh, you know, officer conduct, I think people deserve to know what happened there and have a thorough investigation with a published report as to if you're filing charges and why or why not. Because again, that goes back to one of the hearts of things I talked about earlier is building and rebuilding public trust in their government and their judicial system. Uh, in terms of things that I am not in favor of, uh, I would not favor reducing sentences and consequences for you know, violent offenders, uh, for some of the worst of the worst offenders that we see. Yeah, I think it's important that we do have options on the books for holding people that commit heinous crimes accountable. And again, I think that's what uh, the public expects from their justice system is to have the tools to you know, seek justice. And if that is a lengthy prison sentence for a terrible crime, whether it's a murder of a child or uh, any number of things, frankly, that I've seen, um, you know, repeat offenders committing violent armed robberies uh, over and over again. And I, I would not be in favor of seeing sentences and consequences reduced for those uh, violent offenders. That was my conversation with John Kellner, the Republican district attorney candidate in Colorado's 18th Judicial District. The next episode in our Elected Justice series features my conversation with Amy Padden, the Democratic candidate who believes the district wants a DA who will focus on crime prevention policies and reducing racial disparities in the criminal court system. Thanks for listening. I'm Julia Carty. See you next time.